Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. You can follow us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We're on Instagram at Matchpoint Canada as well, and we're also on YouTube under the same name. Well, very special guest for this week's episode, one of the best Canadian tennis players of all time, former Wimbledon finalist. Uh, but before we get to that, um, all the news right now, Mike, uh, revolving around Novak Djokovic and this Adria Tennis Tour exhibition series, which he scheduled, and uh, now seeing a string of positive COVID-19 tests on the tour, uh, including uh, a positive test from the world number one and his wife. It's basically worst case scenario, isn't it, in terms of how badly this could have gone for, for Novak and all those who were involved in, in putting that event together. Uh, the players, the spectators, the officials who were all there working it. And, you know, as it, as it was happening last week, we were all kind of looking at it, or at least those of us in, in North America, those of us in, in areas that are still under to certain levels of uh, isolation and distancing and, and all of these COVID-19 protocols that we're under. And it was, it, it really ticked me off. And I think it, it angered a lot of people. And it, we weren't angry because it was Novak Djokovic doing it. And we weren't looking for him to fail. We were angry because here we've been for three months, socially distancing, uh, quarantining, isolating with our families, away from our friends, away from our coworkers, you know, worried about our health, worried about the, the health of, of people in our family. Many of us dealing with people who are in the hospital, whether it be for COVID-19 or other things that we're worried about what they might catch while there. And, and we've all done our part. And, and yeah, not everybody, of course, not everybody, but you know, people like, like you and me, and I'd like to think reasonable people who are out there, we're all doing our part. And then we see this happening where it's not just a tennis event and it's not just an exhibition, but it's packed stands and it's players fraternizing outside of competition and hugging and high-fiving. And, and then the last straw was the shirtless dance party to cap everything off. And, and I don't care what the levels are like in Serbia or what the reported levels are like in Serbia you've got players coming from all over the place and you don't know what their circles have been like and what they may be bringing with them. And unfortunately, all of our concerns and all of our, our criticisms of the event have proven to be absolutely warranted with the information that, that came out this morning. Yeah, look, um, ultimately, this is falling at the hands of Novak Djokovic because he was the lead organizer in this event. We, we should point out, all these other tennis players who did attend, your Andre Rublev, Sasha Zverev, Grigor Dimitrov, Borna Chorich, who did test positive, so did Viktor Troitsky. Uh, we, saw, we saw all of them, I think, engaging in this behavior that was clearly not adhering to any social distancing protocols whatsoever. They clearly didn't have any of those protocols on site. Um, but I, I look at Novak Djokovic, your world number one tennis player, and you know the brains behind this operation to hold a tennis exhibition series. Have this idea. I, I think he's he's guided in in the right way in a sense that I I think his intentions are good. He he just doesn't have an understanding of, of optics and you know the realization that things are not normal. Maybe they've eased up a little bit in Serbia and Croatia, but this was not the time to be risking any type of thing where you have spectators in droves packing the stands. It, it looked bad from the get-go, which is what we said. And of course, the worst case scenario happened. And look, Novak Djokovic, I, I think, is one of the most unbelievable sportsmen we have today. He's arguably, arguably the greatest tennis player we've ever seen. Um, but I think he has to acknowledge and take a step back and realize whether he wants to be or not, he is a role model. And he has to set the precedent of doing the right thing. He clearly did the wrong thing here. And a lot of the blame is, is going to be laid at his feet, and, and rightly so. He's just incredibly naive, I think, is, is, is what I've seen from him. Um, since all of this um, stuff started, we've really seen in sort of increments that um, that he's he's missing the the mark, and he's mm -hmm. all the good intentions in the world are not going to protect people from something like this. And it, it wasn't a bad idea to have a tennis exhibition, and there's other tennis exhibitions that have happened, yep. and, and other ones that are going to happen. And, and clearly going to be learning a lot from this one. Not that it need, we didn't need to learn from this. There are a lot of people out there saying, you know, this is, um, this is a new reality that we're coming to, to, to realize. Well, no, hold on a second. 
uh, we've been fully aware of this new reality for the past three months. Uh, and, and to sort of defend Djokovic and others who ran this um, and say that, oh, now we're realizing, no, I'm sorry, that's, that's not good enough. We knew about this much before. Uh, but the idea for the EXO wasn't bad. It's the, the execution. You, you didn't have to have any spectators. You didn't have to pack stands, that's for sure. Uh, you, you didn't have to have soccer games beforehand. You, you didn't have to have a kid's clinic. Yeah, it's a great idea. But now it just seems like an awful idea. And as much as we know about the players that have tested positive and people in their entourage, we're never really going to know how many people that attended this event, how many kids who are at that clinic are going to be exposed to the virus because of their recklessness. And uh, I mean, the party at the end of it all, it just, it was disgusting. And uh, in any other time, in any other place, I would have said, hey, that looks like a, a great event. That looks like a lot of fun. Yep. But this was just done in such a, a, a god-awful way. And uh, I know some people are saying it's an attack, a personal attack on Djokovic. And look, we all have athletes that we look up to, respect, that are our favorites, um, celebrities, things like that. But sometimes you've got to be able to call, uh, call people out when they're wrong. And, uh, and Novak is not infallible. He's not this, you know, untouchable supreme leader. And I'm fairly certain, and I know a lot of people might not agree with me from the Djokovic camp, but if this had been Roger Federer putting this on, if this had been Rafael Nadal putting this on, and I don't think either one ever would have because I think there's a little bit more wherewithal, but if they had, the media would be all over them in a very similar way. And yep. if anything, if, if the only reason why Novak is getting it a little bit more harsher, perhaps, than they might if the situation was, was led by, by either Federer or Nadal, is only because of the constant examples since um, isolation came out of Novak just not getting, you know, everyday health and safety precautions that we should be taking. Yes, yeah, we, we saw the unfortunate remarks back in April about vaccinations where uh, I think a lot of us, the, the tennis community and, and the world at large wondered, is the world number one tennis player anti-vaccine? Uh, we saw him bring, bring on sort of pseudoscience health gurus onto Instagram live chats. And I, I hope this is kind of the straw that, that breaks the camel's back, as it were, and and uh, we see a, a better side of Novak moving forward. He did issue an apology on Twitter. Uh, just to read a portion of it, he said, I'm so deeply sorry. Our tournament has caused harm. Everything the organizers and I did the past month, we did with a pure heart and sincere intentions. We believed we had met all the health protocols and the health of our region seemed in good condition to finally unite people for philanthropic reasons. We were wrong and it was too soon. I can't express enough how sorry I am for this and every case of infection. And, and look, I, I really do hope Novak Djokovic has no ill effects from getting COVID-19. Same with all the athletes. I, I'm, more, I'm more so concerned about spectators who did attend. Uh, if you had older people in the audience, if they were exposed to the virus, those are the people who are really at risk. And uh, before we move on from this topic, I do want to point out as well, they had sort of a little charity basketball game for fun. Denver Nuggets all-star Nikola Jokic was there in attendance. I think there is a, an image there of him hugging with Novak Djokovic. Jokic has also tested positive for COVID-19. So we're seeing the ramifications of not following these ba basic social distancing measures. And, and let's not, and I don't mean you and me, but just, you know, tennis media and, and, you know, critics in general point all the fingers at Novak Djokovic. Yes, it was, you know, his brainchild and he was the, the face of it, of course, but, you know, uh, other people as well, the, the government officials for allowing it to happen um, yeah. uh, to other organizers behind the scenes. And, and all those players that went and attended, I mean, come on, they don't get a free pass either. They should have known better. If they were going to attend, they should have looked into what the precautions were going to be. And if I'm at an event like that, and, and I think it's going to be properly handled, but then I notice, wait a minute, we're, we're hugging in soccer games. And, well, I'm going to take a step back and say, hey, I'll see you on the tennis court, but I'm not going to be participating in, in all this other stuff. And, you know, that might be a good segue to our, our guest today, uh, speaking with Milos Raonic, because we did you know, pointedly ask him his thoughts and uh, impressions of what went on at this Adria tennis tour. And uh, well, well, we'll, you know, in a moment get to that interview, but he said in no uncertain terms, he would not have felt comfortable being there with those conditions in place. Yeah, and I, I did find it interesting that he did receive an invite to this event, which he'll explain to us. Uh, but overall, uh, it was great touching base with Milos Raonic because I, I feel like he is one of the more 
introverted analytical players that we do have on the ATP tour. And we acknowledge we haven't seen much from him on social media. So we feel very privileged, I think, to have had the opportunity to, to chat with him. And he gave us actually a, a lot of insight on, on what he's working on with his game and, and what he's expecting when the tour returns. Yeah, having Milos was a big one for the podcast because, uh, you know, we've been the official Tennis Canada podcast now for uh, just over a year. And he's one of the few big uh, Canadian players that we haven't yet had. And I think part of that stems from the fact that, as you mentioned, he's not super huge in terms of his social media presence. Uh, he doesn't do a ton of promotional stuff. And to me, he really just gives off that vibe that he's a hard worker, very focused, and, you know, he's not getting distracted by things in the periphery and that's totally understandable but uh you, you knew it was a big one for us because we both wore collared shirts today and uh <laughs> and we both shaved yeah. not that you can tell with me on on any day but uh for those who are going to watch this on zoom perhaps later the fresh face look from both us uh hosts here uh we we tried to clean up a little bit for our special guest today yeah, yeah, it's unusual to see me uh, clean shaven. I, I will point out before we throw to Milos Raonic, there is one thing distracting him this day, uh, these days, which is a new puppy, which uh, he does mention and uh, did uh, serve as a brief distraction in our call. But uh, without further ado, uh, our interview with Canadian tennis player Milos Raonic. Today on the podcast, we're very pleased to welcome someone who has really changed the landscape for tennis here in Canada. He's a Wimbledon finalist, former world number three on the ATP Tour, Canadian year-end number one more times than I can even count. And we've got many listeners who've been looking forward to hearing from him on our podcast. Milos Raonic, welcome to Matchpoint Canada. It's good to be back. Thank you guys for having me for the first time. Yeah, we're, uh, we're thrilled to have you. And uh, I just want to begin, um, obviously, you know, the, the tour has been on hiatus for a few months. The world has kind of been on hiatus. What, uh, what have you been up to during this period of quarantine? And have you been able to uh, train the past several weeks on the court as well? Yeah, we've, uh, we've gotten creative. Um, as a tennis player with our full season, this is the first time we're actually having a longer period of time to work on things, to, uh, to improve things, to, to try to take that next step to becoming a better player and get closer to reaching my goals. So uh, it didn't really stop for me. Right after the season got canceled, I took uh, a very short break and then got straight into training uh, over s uh, several blocks of uh, four to five weeks each. Um, the first one we really focused on a little bit of tennis, you know, just to keep the feel of the ball, to keep hitting the ball on court, but really focused on fitness and making sure that uh, I could sort of uh, restructure, rebuild my body so that when we do get back, uh, especially with the injuries I've dealt with over the last couple of years, that uh, I could uh, try to solve any issues or hopefully prevent anything that might come up in the future. And then the second block, we sort of still continue to focus on uh, uh, the fitness, but we definitely increased the intensity and the volume of tennis and started working more things about implementing things on court, different situations, uh, moving from side to side, tennis-specific movements, different strategies that I would like to use, working off those, building off those, working on coming forward a bit more, um, a lot of striking on the first ball with returns and so forth. And then uh, the next block, which is going to be the one that leads us into our hopeful return just uh, ahead of the U.S. Open. It's going to be really situational, specific stuff. It's going to be uh, a lot more time on court, obviously going to keep fine-tuning the fitness, but it's going to be about uh, getting out on court, implementing those things I worked through through the second block and trying to find things that could uh, you know, help me on court. Watched a bunch of video, saw specific things uh, that uh, other guys do to uh, – to put me in an uncomfortable situation. So coming up with ways to counteract that, working on specific things that can help me find a way to be the one dictating on court, to be the one that's uh, sort of leading the charge and hopefully the one that can uh, be implementing my game and uh, imposing my game on my opponents. Sounds like, uh, so it's obviously been a really 
active block of time for you with time off. I, I think we've, we've heard from other players and, and they've taken that time to maybe rest up, but uh, for you sort of reshaping your body, uh, obviously vital given the injuries you dealt with the, the past couple of years. I, I'm just wondering when we do get back to live tennis on tour, what do you think is maybe the most challenging aspect after having that hiatus for a while, not, not having that feeling of competition on court? What's the most challenging thing? I think it's just about getting into that rhythm of matches. Um, fortunately for me, uh, I guess the silver lining can be that I have been hurt. I have had to stop a bunch of times right. and come out for matches and sort of find my rhythm pretty quickly. So uh, I have some sense of what is my process to try to get ahead of that as quickly as possible. I think that's going to be the toughest challenge. I think for us also as well, uh, for the men, it's going to be, quickly coming up to a three out of five set match. I think, uh, you know, you can play one or two tournaments, uh, depending if Washington happens or not. Uh, you can play one or two tournaments, and then all of a sudden you're expected a three out of five, which some could say it's similar to what we're expected of uh, early in the year, every year with the Australian Open, but it's different because when we get to the Australian Open, we probably were already playing two out of three set matches maybe six, eight, ten weeks before. Whereas now, uh, nobody's going to be have played any two out of three set matches in a competitive atmosphere since uh, probably something around the numbers of 12, of 16 to 20 weeks. So I think that's, that's, that's going to take a little bit uh, from guys and getting back into it. So I think that uh, guys are going to, and girls are going to try to go around uh, play different exhibitions, try to simulate that as much as possible to give themselves the best opportunity possible to be as ready as quickly as possible. But it's going to be hard uh, to create that kind of real simulation, like playing for, for points, playing for ranking spots, playing for big trophies right away. And I think it's uh, also going to be an opportunity for people to see uh, how each player might have used this differently this period of time who used it to work on things who used it to recover I think uh, players will sort of get into their game at different paces and then it's going to be a good opportunity to try to take advantage of that and be extremely ready to uh, get ahead and uh, try to start off strong because uh, from what I understand there won't be much tennis to them I think the schedule is going to stay that they want the full off season and so forth and it's for the men's side it's going to be three master series and two grand slams within an eight week gap. So you want to be firing as quickly as possible and ready as quickly as possible. It's interesting what you say about sort of, uh, we'll have a better idea what people have been up to when we see them back in competition during this time. Some players we've seen lots of on social media, you know, exploring different sides, not just their tennis, but their personal side of life too. And You've been pretty quiet on social media even before um, coronavirus uh, came around this year. And uh, I, I kind of feel like that's just your focus. You've got that singular focus. And in a lot of ways, it reminds me of your, your idol growing up, Pete Sampras, who was just focused on his winning and being the best player he could be. Is it um, a conscious decision not to be on social media too much? And can you let in our listeners and fans of yours who are listening, what are some of the non-tennis things that uh, you've been up to over the past few months? Well, it's, it's been conscious and unconscious at the same time. One thing that I have been fortunate over the last couple of months, even before Corona hit, uh, was I was healthy and it was the time I could train. So obviously that's going to keep me away from that. You know, I wasn't uh, rehabbing any issues. I was able to train, spend as much time as I can on courts and doing the things uh, that I can best to, to prepare myself. And I think uh, that part was uh, unconscious because my time was just busy and I didn't have necessarily the uh, same, uh, same openings in my schedule. I have made a conscious effort to be on my phone less and just really focus on the, uh, the things I need to be doing from a day to day, that sort of process of going forth. But uh, from before and after, my, other than being home, it, things haven't really changed, you know, as tennis players. Um, I've always, uh, in off season or times off, I've actually liked to be sort of in isolation and just really focus on my tennis. So, uh, this new way of life has not been, uh, as, uh, unfamiliar to me as it may have been to people that 
you know, necessarily are home with their families or not as traveling as much as tennis players from a young age. You start, you get on the road and you end up spending a lot of time in a hotel room because you're trying to preserve your energy for your matches and this kind of thing. But I have to say the one biggest change for me over this last period of time has been getting a, a puppy. Um, that's been a pleasant welcome and it's been great and uh, I'm very happy about that that does take up a lot of time uh, a lot of 5am wake ups a lot of uh, 11 o'clock uh, uh, bathroom calls but uh, it's been a lot of fun and it's added a whole other context through this uh, last few months wait, wait till you have kids one day that'll be even another level of uh, <laughs> lifestyle change but, but that sounds really cool um, here in Canada, and because we're the Tennis Canada podcast, um, we're, we're obviously going through a time period that some are already calling the golden age of Canadian tennis, which is maybe a little premature, but at the same point, there's, there's reason for that optimism. We've got a single slam winner now in Bianca, and yourself along with Dennis and Felix giving us three guys who went healthier or top 20 players on the ATP tour. You were really the one that first came along though and gave us that legit threat in men's singles here in Canada and, and raised the profile of the sport here in our country. Is that something that gives you satisfaction, how you've impacted the sport here in Canada? It's something I take a lot of pride in. Um, it's something that I never directly gave it much thought. I sort of felt like, Hey, I, I uh, keep going along my path. I keep putting in the hard work. I want to be the best player I can be each and every day, make sure that I'm getting better and go out there and try to get as close as I can and hopefully achieve my goals. And it felt sort of a, a repercussion, a positive one. Uh, and to see, you know, from when I broke through um, to where we are now, uh, it's, it's a great honor for me to have, uh, you know, uh, with the, uh, the Canadians, the young Canadians doing so well, that sort of maybe not right away the next generation, but the generation right after that it really, you know, struck gold with, with uh, Dennis, Felix, Bianca, to see that. And then you still have myself, uh, Vasek, doing well and these kind of things. It's it's a great honor to be a part of that. And that means a lot to me. And uh, it's it was never a conscious effort, but it's nice to see sort of what it has become. and. I'm equally or if not more so excited to see what it is going to become in the future. And I think the, the next waves and uh, also with these younger players growing up and uh, filling out and fulfilling their promise, I think uh, all those kind of things are only going to be, you know, on an upward trend. And it's a very exciting time, I think, for myself and for everybody. Since you mentioned Vashik, we should give him a nice shout out because he did also turn 30 today. So happy birthday to Vashik Pospisil. I don't know if you had a chance to send him a message, but I'm, I'm sure he's enjoying his day. Um, I also wanted to just get back to the schedule. As, as you mentioned, just, just playing that block of tournaments in an eight-week span. We, we have the U.S. Open on the schedule. We have Roland Garros, Western and Southern Open, City Open, uh, all of this beginning in August. What are your thoughts on, on everything, just, I guess, being that condensed? And do you have any concerns or trepidations about, about going, uh, you know, in terms of your health and what's, what's been going on? I think it's hard to have a clear plan at this point. Obviously, if I can, I want to start playing as early as possible um, in the sense of I would love to play in Washington if possible, uh, if that event is going to happen and follow through and then lead off with the Cincinnati U.S. Open and be there for all the events. And then I think you have to make the decisions uh, as you see how how it plays out for you, how it plays out for you physically, mentally, how many matches you're playing. All these kind of things, it's, going to, it's new territory. It's hard to have a clear and concise plan, and then you adjust from there. Obviously, for me, uh, historically-wise, and just the way I've always scheduled things, it's, uh, hard court is going to be the greatest opportunity and a big part of my focus. So uh, I will want to compete in all those events that are going to be on hard right away at the beginning, and then sort of see where I am uh, on first of all, how many matches I've played, when the U.S. Open is finishing for me, and uh, where I'm at before we start up in Madrid, Rome, and French Open. I haven't played on clay the last few years just because of physical issues. Um, now, with speaking with my team, all those things have uh, 
you know, calmed down and have been uh, under control for quite some time. And I feel like it's something that I'm going to participate in this year. And uh, the question is, you know, going from uh, not playing for two years and obviously by the time that gets around, it'll be a full three-year calendar since not playing on clay. um, Do you do four weeks straight on it? Obviously, and four very tough weeks uh, because the one thing that will be nice about going from Cincinnati to the U.S. Open, there won't be any travel in between. For those next events, you know, from U.S. Open to Madrid, to Rome, to Paris, there will be travel and all those kind of things. So all those things have to come into consideration. You see how you're going to deal with it. And I think uh, the one benefit I have uh, in terms of making progress, I haven't played, I don't think I've played a single one of those events last year. Of those uh, five big events, I think the last thing I played last year uh, would be Washington, which I didn't do well. It's a chance for me to make my way back up uh, the rankings to places where I want to be. So uh, hopefully I can be healthy. Hopefully I can play a lot of matches and then have, have uh, let's say, a good problem to have in uh, deciding which tournaments maybe not to play further down that schedule so I can be at my best at the right moments. Yeah, and, uh, that's certainly the hope for, for fans here in Canada as well. We want to see you uh, play as, as much tennis as possible in 2020 if uh, if – the, the tour allows it. I, I'm curious uh, as well from your vantage point, uh, you know, you, you've played in packed stadiums, you've played on, on the biggest stages in the world, and it's obviously going to be a, a completely different feeling um, playing likely without spectators. Uh, how, how weird do you think that's going to feel? Do you think uh, it will affect certain players more, more than others or, or will it, will it be fine? I think where it'll have the most effect, I don't know if it'll be early on in matches, but I think it's, especially at Grand Slams, when you have those matches, you know, you're down two sets to love. Um, You know, court 17, which is a nice court at the U.S. Open, a nice circular uh, stadium. Good Mm -hmm. crowd, holds noise pretty well, and that's pretty much silent. That's going to be interesting. You know, is it are guys going to maybe check out a little earlier because there isn't that energy to get you sort of back into it? Those kind of things and those kind of moments, I think it might make a difference. And I, I don't know if that's going to be exclusively to some players or to most players or to all players. I think players are going to have to go there ready uh, and understanding that, you know, they're going to have to get it out of themselves. There's not going to be somebody in those difficult situations to help them, uh, you know, find that next, next level, that next gear. But, uh, you know, tennis, we practice most of the time in front of nobody. We, we know how it, uh, it is, you know, to play those practice points and all those kind of things. And to be able to have a crowd would be a great thing. But the way the world is right now, it would be, naive to ask for that I think and I think uh, it's the right situation and players are going to have to adapt and you know we're used to going from tournament to tournament changing condition changing courts changing tennis balls all these kind of things that when you get to a new tournament you have to adjust this is going to be another one of those steps and I think uh, tennis players uh, compared to a lot of athletes since our conditions are always varying and changing we we can we can adjust and I think We'll have to, and you'll see a bunch of players, and then it's something that you know you'll grow into, and it won't be, I think, as much of a distraction or or outside force uh, through the weeks uh, if we continue to play with no fans. Now, there might be some players, obviously, that choose not to go to the U.S. Open if they're either not comfortable putting themselves into that setting right now, or perhaps they want to stay and train in Europe for that clay court swing that you were referring to. That would be a good opportunity for a lot of people to maybe get that first slam without as many competitors in there at that same level, perhaps Uh, your career has come at an interesting time considering you've had to contend with the big three all the way through. Now they're in their mid thirties, late thirties with Roger, and they're still the top presence in the men's game. Uh, And then you've also got a lot of young talent coming up uh, that has emerged. Is that a motivator? Is it a source of frustration? Do you ever just, wish these guys would go retire and start enjoying the, the family life. Uh, how do you take that as they've just maintained that high level for so long throughout your career and, and others as well? First, you, you admire them for what they're doing. Uh, you, you not only are looking at some of the greatest tennis players, but you're looking at the greatest sportsmen in, in the world that you're competing with and that you're really trying to get the best of. Um, and it forces uh, you to get, 
even better levels out of yourself. And uh, it forced, obviously, the three of them to reach uh, new, new levels amongst themselves as well. And who knows what the uh, level of tennis would be uh, if it wasn't for those guys. Would it be higher or lower? It's hard to say, but definitely they have pushed new barriers. They have created a certain standard of tennis that everybody's trying to you know live up to and provide and be able to to play with on court but for me it's an honor to to be during this uh, this period of time and the fact that they're still out there and doing it also is very inspiring and motivating i work very hard i'm very assured in that and that gives me my confidence and hopefully i can be playing at a high level for a long time throughout my career and you know, uh, I just take care of the things that I have control of, you know, between the current generation that's uh, been dominant uh, amongst those big three and then younger players coming up. That's that's out of my purview. I just really focus on on what I can do to get the best level out of myself and then uh, let the pieces fall where they may and just go out there, give it my best and try to be the best player I can each and every week. Yeah, well said. What's your personal comfort level um, ahead of heading to New York City, uh, just in terms of where coronavirus is right now? I, I know even when I go out just for a short trip to Canadian Tire, I feel kind of paranoid, and that's how much I've been in my bubble here at home, really, over the last three months. How do you think you're going to feel as you travel there, as you're, I mean, there aren't any fans, of course, but still with other players and, and their small entourages with them. Um, how do you personally feel from from that medical sort of side of things right now? Um, it's hard to really have a perspective. I think my whole stance on this was where we are two months plus ahead of the U.S. Open when the U.S. Open was looking to make any decisions. I thought, felt that that would be at a point that's maybe uh, too early on to call something off. In that sense, we don't know, you know, from where the world was four months ago to where it is now to where it's going to be in three months. We we. We have some ideas. We don't have a very clear understanding of it. But what I do understand is things will change. You know, they could change for the better or worse. Hopefully they are for the better. Uh, and that uh, we could be, you know, feeling more comfortable about it. Obviously, there will be precautions made. Uh, I know the the setting that the U.S. Open has presented to the players and the rules and uh, sort of how to go about things some players uh, are uncomfortable with. I think a lot of top players uh, are the most un thing, thing that they're most uncomfortable with is going to be the minimized teams around them. You know, being used to having myself personally a tennis coach and a physio with me there at least to have to, you know, when you go out to play three out of five sets, you're choosing either your tennis or your health. And that's a hard decision to make. So that's, that's the toughest decision. But health-wise, you know, I'll always be wearing a mask. Uh, I won't be leaving my room unless I need to. You know, I'll practice with another player, uh, which, by the way, I've currently been doing to to be able to practice. So those kind of things I will continue and be as cautious as I can and try to, again, control as much as I can and really not get bogged down by the things that might be out of my hands and uh, try to deal with it as best as possible and really try to, as much as I can, focus on my tennis and see where that takes me. Yeah, and tennis itself, it, it seems like if, if you do have a, a nice controlled environment that, that it is a good social distancing sport itself. But I, I did want to get your reaction on uh, the tennis news that's unfolded over the past weekend and uh, today as well. And I'm sure you're aware of it, the Adria Tennis Tour Exhibition Series that was organized by Novak Djokovic. He's now tested positive for COVID-19. Grigor Dimitrov, born a Chorich. Victor Troitsky, uh, a coach and a, a fitness trainer as well, all registering positive tests. Um, were, were you surprised at all the, the way this event went on? Uh, did, did you get an invite as well to, to compete there? And uh, what was your reaction when uh, you, you saw this news come through? Um, I did uh, have that conversation about going there. Um, for me, the one thing uh, that felt, that I was the most uncomfortable with was going to be if the U S open was to announce that they are continuing with their plans forward was going to be going overseas and back. The way I saw it was if I had to go overseas and there was going to be no U S open. And the next thing that we were preparing for was a European swing on clay. 
I knew I was going to be making that trip once, but to make a trip there and back didn't seem like the best decision for me. And also where I was at this point, uh, you know, without having the opportunity to prepare for clay court events, just uh, with the adequate amount of time, th that didn't seem the right decision for me. Um, I was a little bit surprised uh, at the Belgrade event to see how packed the stadium was. Um, from what I understood, it was going to be less. And uh, that, that kind of took me by surprise. Also, the promotional events uh, leading up to the matches took me by surprise between the soccer men and the basketball game. Uh, those, those, I don't know if I would have necessarily felt comfortable uh, participating in personally. As far as tennis matches go and playing a tennis match, uh, across from one opponent, mind you, assuming that testing is done before matches, there, I would have comfort in that. I would have knowing that, A, I was negative, my opponent was negative. Uh, hopefully, if you are providing line judges and, and ball kids, those, there are precautions being taken on them, either through them wearing protective equipment or them also being tested, and then minimal contact. Uh, those are some things that I could wrap my head around and I could see myself competing under those conditions. But uh, it's very unfortunate, you know, with uh, Grigor, Borna, uh, Victor, Novak, all those guys testing positive. Also, their families around them, their team. I hope it doesn't have any long-term adverse effects. Um, I hope that they can all recover quickly and it doesn't really af uh, affect them in any way uh, in the short term and in the long term. I'm not necessarily uh, too uh, benounced on what exactly it does to your body over the long term and what kind of changes it might make. But uh, I just think that uh, it went a little bit too far to a point that would have been outside of my comfort and uh, I hope that they can turn that around for themselves personally. And I hope that also it's not going to have this kind of effect on the crowd. I think that that would sort of be uh, the toughest, uh, the toughest thing for a player to take on is that they put together an event and then uh, it's, it sort of ripples on and has a longer term effect on many people, uh, not just the ones that they're closest with. Yeah, we, we certainly hope uh, all the players get uh, healthy again and recover quickly. Um, I'm also curious, do you think this might serve as any kind of setback with, within the ATP schedule at all? I, I'm not sure if that'll be an internal discussion, but, but do you think uh, things will still be safe going forward despite these positive tests? Yeah, I think so. I think all this is going to assure them is like, hey, if we're going to have tennis events, they're going to be strictly tennis events with no fans, no media, no extra people that we need. All this is doing, is, I felt, was assuring that uh, maybe the U.S. Open is going on with those strict precautions in the right way. Um, I guess the only thing I would hope is they told us we don't know what the uh, the tours, uh, the world's going to be like in a few months. Maybe there is a chance that you can have more than one team member if things end up. I hope that this doesn't affect that because I know there's a bunch of people, myself included, where uh, having to make that decision of health or tennis, it's it's not an easy one. And it's going to be one that's going to be made in the last uh, minute. I, I'm pretty sure it's going to lead to me believing that my physio is going to be more important at a tennis tournament for me, which is hard to believe. You're there to play tennis, but you're, you're, you're go going almost without a tennis coach. So that's, uh, I hope it doesn't have an effect on that. I hope that if things still continue to be better, if uh, the U.S. Open feels and gets the green light that they do allow us uh, to have uh, what I would consider our essential team around us. Yeah, and for a player like yourself with the injury history, unfortunately, that, that is a, a big decision you have to make. Uh, you're also not getting any younger, I have to point out, because as Vashik is turning 30 today, um, I did a quick search. I don't know why I thought you guys were still in your late 20s, but you've got a big birthday coming up this year as well. Well, I'm still in my 20s. <laughs> it's true. You've got a few more months. Yeah, that I got true. a few more months. I got till December 27th. I won't go. rob you of that, but uh, <laughs> it, it's funny to me because it doesn't seem that long ago since I was watching you and a very baby-faced uh, Vashik playing in doubles at the Rogers Cup in 2010 in that really cool match against Nadal and Djokovic who were 
one and two in the world at the time. And look at how little's changed in the decade, I guess. But uh, how do you feel about approaching this milestone in age, keeping in mind that you won't get any sympathy from me and Ben because we've already passed it? Um, and, and how do you think a 20-year-old Milos would look at all that you've done and where you are today? And, and what do you think he would have said about the career you've had to this point? Well, uh, thankfully, I turned 30 in the offseason, right? Uh, or maybe that's a bad thing. There isn't any tennis at that moment to distract me. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it feels like a lot has happened over the last uh, decade uh, in my tennis. I broke through... Uh, you know, I started playing a few ATP tournaments uh, where I could qualify and get into them in 2010. And I really make my, made my breakthrough in 2011, where I was full-time on tour. And it doesn't feel like it's that long ago. It doesn't feel like it's been 10 years. And uh, that's a good and a bad thing. I think it keeps you motivated. It keeps you excited. And it, it's something I love incredibly to do. And it makes me completely completely euphoric that I have the chance to compete and go out to tournaments uh, healthy and try to find an, uh, a new level and get better. That, that really does a lot for me personally. And a young Milos would, you know, probably would have signed over a lot of things if you could have promised him uh, the career that I've had so far. But uh, current Milos feels like he has a longer ways to go and a lot more to achieve and a lot more things he wants to do. So um, I wish I had maybe some of that more uh, young uh, uh, positivity of the younger Milos uh, nowadays. It would probably do me some good. You sound like you got a good grasp of the situation. I've got a, a big one coming up this summer too. So uh, you've still got lots of time. Uh, one last question and then we'll let you get back to your, your training and your puppy there. But uh, we read your quotes on the uh, cancellation or I should say postponement of the 2020 Rogers Cup. And uh, if you could just expand a little on your favorite memories of that tournament from years past, uh, maybe even from when you were younger as a kid, I'm sure you must have attended uh, here in Toronto. What are your, your thoughts and, and what will you miss the most this year? of not having that. Well, for me, it's uh, amongst the most important events in my schedule throughout the year um, that I look forward to, the, where I want to compete. And I think uh, for it to not to be happening is incredibly saddening. Um, but at the same time, I'm sure amongst what is going on in Canada, throughout Toronto, throughout the bigger cities, which mostly my family, my parents are keeping me aware of uh, when I speak with them daily, it, it's the right decision. Uh, I'm happy that, uh, you know, it won't be uh, four years till I get to compete in Toronto again. I'm happy it is being pushed back only to next year and that we, uh, the men will have a chance to be there. Um, it is the only tournament I've ever attended as a fan. Um, I've never gone to any other uh, tournaments when I was younger. Uh, you know, I went from being under, I believe, under 10 or under 12, being one of those little aces tennis matches where you get to play for 10 minutes and you try to get in as many games before a match goes on. And then and you go there, you do the coin toss with the players. Um, I remember Tommy Haas was one of those guys that I did the coin toss uh, for back uh, when it was, I think, the uh, maybe it was the Demoria Cup. I can't remember what, what it was called back then, but it was at that old site at York University. To, um, I remember I was like a makeshift photographer one time just so I could get a pass so I could be closer to the players uh, when it moved over to the, to the new venue. Uh, so all those kind of things in my, my early developmental stages where it gave me so much motivation where you get up close to these players and you're like, hell yeah, I want to be a part of this. I want to do everything I can to be a part of this. I want to be a part of this at the Rogers Cup. I want to be a part of this at Wimbledon, at the US Open, all these other events. This is where my dream, where my goals, and I wish for them to take me. So those kind of feelings, having that uh, and knowing that that kind of satisfaction from the little kid inside you can't be fulfilled this year by going there to compete is, is tough but it is the right decision. And it's also very endearing and positive that we get to come back to it in 2021. And, you know, I'm sure the people will be 
hungry. The players will be hungry for tennis to be in Toronto. And I'm very excited for it. And I can't wait. And I hope that, uh, you know, there's going to be a normal standard of life back uh, by that time, but also, uh, also an appreciation for it because I think people will really miss out, uh, for tennis for a full 24 months, what it turns out to be. Um, and, uh, I can't wait to get back. Well, I, I'm sure so many of uh, your Canadian fans uh, can't wait to see you uh, live again next next summer. I, I know we'll be there and eagerly watching uh, when things are back to normal. And we're also excited to to see you back on tour when ATP play resumes. Uh, Milos, thanks so much for, for taking the time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thanks, Milos. And uh, don't forget to get that haircut before you step back out onto the court. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might have to do it myself. There you have it, former world number three, former Wimbledon finalist Milos Raonic on Matchpoint Canada. And uh, I was so thrilled with uh, how happy he seemed to chat with us, honestly. Yeah, well, probably, you know, being isolated for so long with so few people there, it's just nice maybe to see some, maybe he misses the media after all this time. <laughs> maybe. Knows, right? I'm not sure maybe about play, that. Maybe but... players, when we get back to actual tennis tournaments, players are going to be super friendly. Maybe we'll see like a Nick Kyrgios who just can't wait to see the press. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, I would love that. Yeah, I would love that. He was he was in a very upbeat mood. And um, I, I don't know about you, but what struck me the most from that conversation was just um, how, how prepared he seems to be for when tennis does resume. The, the detail he went into on that first question that um, – that you asked him about his preparations, about how he's had phase one and phase two, and then it's going to come phase three where he's focused on, you know, match specifics and, and focused on how other players might take advantage of his perceived weaknesses and things like that. He's got a heck of a plan. And uh, I think he's going to be a big time threat at, uh, at the open, regardless of how big, uh, you know, or how many players end up uh, going to this from the top uh, part of the ATP tour. Yeah, absolutely. You, th you think about kind of getting back into match rhythm, which you mentioned is one of the hardest things to do as you are returning from tour, say, from a hiatus from playing, or in this case, where everybody's been off from a pandemic. How hard is it for guys on the other side facing some 135 mile an hour Milos bombs from that serve? I, I think he is going to be one of these serious threats. And it's very clear with, with his team that they had a plan in place uh, once the tour hit the hiatus that we're, we're not stopping we're not taking a break we're going to use this time productively to get our body in the best shape it can be then we work on different aspects of the tennis game and look before the tour paused I thought Roundish was playing excellent tennis you look at the Australian Open he had earlier this year getting to the quarterfinals and of course Novak Djokovic finally the wall there uh, which was pretty unbreakable of course falling to Djokovic is no shame there but you look at some of his wins as he built up his week there like cruising past Stefano Tsitsipas in three sets comfortably like really really good quality wins it felt like he was really building momentum and one thing Ranich has said in the past is he's always struggled with the full calendar season because he hasn't had time for training blocks more of the time when he does have time off is just, can I feel healthy again to play? Now he has extra time, make sure he's feeling healthy, then work on different aspects of his game and training those aspects. Uh, as you said, I think he's going to be a really strong threat when we're back. I've said this for, you know, the past year plus, which is when he's healthy to me, he is still a top 10 guy. And I know there's going to be people that don't see it that way and that's fine. But when when he is fit and there aren't things that are and we haven't seen that Milos for an extended period of time for quite a while. In fact, he said last year, all of 2019, he never quite felt right. But right. when he is healthy and you look at the top 10 rankings, I put him in there in that seven to 10 range. Uh, no problem. And so he says he's healthy. He looks great uh, when he hits the U.S. Open. Not a guy anyone's going to want to face. Uh, hopefully he gets a draw that's somewhat favorable to him. But. For someone who's uh, never really gone deep at that slam, never made the quarters or, or deeper at the U.S. Open, which is kind of amazing because the surface is, is great for him. But as you mentioned, by that time of the season, he's often just not able to keep it all together for all those best of fives. Coming in refreshed, coming in where this is the second slam of the year and without months of play, uh, I put him as one of those guys that can definitely benefit and I'd put him as, a, if you want to call it a dark horse, I guess, I'd put him as a guy to certainly watch this year. 
Yeah, if I'm thinking back to like a full calendar year where you felt like Milos Raonic was healthy throughout, you probably have to go back to 2016, which is, of course, the year he got to world number three and got to that Wimbledon final and had that great result at the end of year tournament as well. And uh, he understands the strengths and and weaknesses to his game. You know, he's been off the clay for a few years now, so that's obviously something he's going to have to evaluate uh, with his team after a hard court swing. Is he healthy enough to play on the clay court surface? He gets that. Very interesting, though, if you only get one team member at the U.S. Open, someone who has been injury-prone like Milos Ranić, do you choose the, the coach or do you choose physiotherapy? That's going to be a very tough decision. Yeah, as you mentioned, do you choose the tennis or do you choose the, the health aspect? And, uh, right. and that is definitely going to be tricky. Uh, one other thing about Milos that uh, really, really strikes me is I don't feel like he's gotten enough respect, perhaps, from the um, tennis community and those who like to look at Canada in, in specific in terms of our tennis accomplishments. I know people are, are very high on Denis Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassime and on the women's side, Bianca Andreescu, and rightly so, those up-and-coming faces that we're going to have for many, many years to come, hopefully. But Milos has done so much for the sport, and when you think back to what it was like when he was starting his career, 2009, 2010, Canadian tennis was in a wholly different place. And we kind of forget almost, you know, you got that recency bias, but it's just recently that that Tennis Canada has really become a a force on the world stage. And if it weren't for him, I mean, he's definitely got a lot of people excited about the sport over the years. And when you consider from 2010 to 2018, why do we mean 2009 to 2018? He finished as the year-end number one in Canada all of those years for nine straight years, which is quite a remarkable feat. And you could argue he might have done it last year too if he had just played in a few more tournaments. So I don't think he's quite gotten the respect. I don't know if on some level that kind of irks him or or propels him and motivates him. And if so, then that's a good thing if he can use it uh, as a motivating factor to get back up there. Um, Right now, I believe ranked just outside the the top 30, maybe 31st, uh, if memory recalls. But I, I think that we definitely owe a lot to him uh, in, in the same way it can be said. And I know there are people that will critique this, but you know, there's a lot owed to Jeannie Bouchard for what she did in 2014 as well to yep. really put Canada on the map in terms of what we can do in, in singles competition. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you alluded to uh, doubles partner from years ago at Rogers Cup, Vashik Pospisil, and we're saying a happy 30th birthday to Vashik uh, as well. And Milos Raonic, of course, turning 30 later in the year in December. Um, I don't think it does irk him, though, just his personality type. I, I don't think it, it bothers him that, that he's not always getting the recognition. But if you look at Grand Slam results, for me, that's the model of consistency. That's the only thing we're kind of missing from your Dennis and your Felix right now. And Milos is so reliable when he is healthy to make pretty deep runs at Grand Slams. It, it's kind of an outlier that it hasn't happened at the French o- uh, at the U.S. Open, rather. So this might just be the perfect time for, for him to make a run. Yeah, and I mean, there's still time for him and for Vashik. 30 is not oh, yeah. what it used to be. And you and I talked about this earlier today uh, when we were chatting about uh, the episode here is, uh, you know, 30 doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, as long as you can maintain your health. Look at what Vashik's done since he's come back from that back injury. When he's healthy, certainly a top 100, if not in that top 50 range. And uh, Milos, we hope that he can, uh, you know, have good days ahead with his health. Uh, With a serve like that, when you see someone like Ivo Karlovic, who's still throwing bombs at the age of 41, uh, and the rest of his game is nowhere near as solid as as what Milos has, um, I think Raonic still has uh, quite a good, few years ahead of him in terms of potential and what he can do and I still think at Wimbledon he can contend for that one and I also think at the Aussie Open he's capable and if uh, under normal circumstances he's healthy in August he's someone that um, look if you ask guys to write down the top 10 guys they don't want to face at three of the four slams his name's going to be on most of those lists I would say. Yeah absolutely and uh, we should talk I guess a bit more about the U.S. Open because I think a couple of months ago, it felt like an impossibility. Uh, There were so many COVID-19 cases in New York, and and suddenly these cases are going down, and obviously players would be isolated in this this bubble at Flushing Meadows just at hotels, but we are getting event changes as well, so no qualifying, no mixed doubles. Uh, Milos talked about no spectators as well. 
do you think it's going to work? Is it a problem to just keep all of these players isolated in hotels? Are they going to give in to temptation and set foot in Manhattan or the city? Is that going to be an issue? I'm generally an optimist, but when it comes to the return of professional sports, not just tennis, but all professional sports, I'm not feeling very positive and upbeat about it, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, uh, clearly the Adria tennis tour is we're not going to see anything like that again, but, but it shows how things can go, you know, bad real quick. And so, as you said, are people going to adhere to things in in the hotel rooms? Are they going to, and, and all it takes, right. Is, is going to be one player to test positive or one coach. And what does that do? Does that throw the entire thing off? Uh, You look at NHL training camps that are uh, just getting going with like six players on the ice. And already you've got Austin Matthews, a big player from the Toronto Maple Leafs, testing positive and, and, and many others as well. I don't see how this is going to get off the ground um, to be perfectly honest. And, and I'd love it if it did and it'll make a lot of people happy and we'd, we'd love to see some sports, even if we can't attend them in person, but uh, I'm keeping my expectations really low. And more than anything, I just hope that health wise, we, we don't see spikes in places like New York city again and, and Toronto where we are and that, things do start to come down. But you look at some places in the U.S., it's not going well. And uh, is there going to be a second wave in other, other areas as well? Uh, it's, it's quite possible. And so uh, as much as I'd like to see it, Ben, I, I'm not feeling too confident, to be honest with you. No, I'm, I'm not especially confident either. And I know Gabby Dabrowski had uh, some personal thoughts on the U.S. Open as a doubles player and concerned about uh, not only the removal of uh, qualifying, but comfort level of traveling to the United States and just thinking of how many players are coming from different countries. And, and the players I'm honestly concerned about are the players outside of that top 50, outside of that top 75, who haven't had so long to play and, and make a paycheck, who really need the money. And, and this is uh, the motivating factor for a lot of these players. They have to make a living. It, it's easy for a Rafael Nadal, Simona Halep, Ashley Barty to say, I'm concerned I might pass on this one. It doesn't matter to them. They're, they're set for life. We're talking about players uh, lower ranked who, who need this opportunity to play at the Grand Slam level. And you look at the paycheck that a Grand Slam pays out as well. Uh, comparison of losing first round and taking home a check over $30,000 versus playing at a challenger circuit and, you know, making a final and making a couple thousand dollars. So it's, it's a massive difference. And, you know, unfortunately money rules the world and that's, what's going to be the motivating factor for a lot of these players. But uh, there are still many concerns. I know the wheelchair tennis had initially been scrapped and the USTA didn't properly review it. Obviously some wheelchair players complained and now that is back on. We'll see if that can work. Uh, But, it's just going to have an eerie feeling. I think watching it in general, I haven't been watching many of these tennis exhibition matches with no fans. I I just find, I find the whole thing strange. I mean, I'll get over that to be perfectly honest with you. I'll get over it quite quickly. (laughs) It's grand slam tennis. tennis, Yeah, that's fair. You know, I, some people have talked about, well, will they pipe in fake crowd noise on the, uh, the TV streams, right? I don't care what they do. I'll have fun watching it. Um, just quickly, I did want to say that when they when they gave no thought whatsoever to consulting the wheelchair athletes uh, before they made that unilateral decision, I'm glad they've reversed it. But yeah. boy, that was a terrible look, just an absolute terrible look to go ahead and make a decision like that without any consultation. Way to make those players feel as if, you know, they're not important at all in the eyes of the organizers. So that was definitely a big mistake that I'm glad has been rectified. About the allure of the prize money that you mentioned, uh, put it this way, I suppose, uh, there is no media that's going to be on site at the U.S. Open. And if they were having media on site, I don't know about you, but I personally would not feel comfortable going to New York right now. So I would definitely opt out on that one. But if they were offering me first round prize money like some of these players might get, well, that would make me probably think twice about it. Uh, yeah. I mean, ultimately, I wouldn't go because I've got young kids and my wife is a healthcare worker. So we're being very careful in our household. But I can certainly see and understand how some people might be drawn to uh, go to an event like that for that kind of payday when, you know, for many of these athletes, like you said, outside the top 100, it's going to be a shorter career than what Nadal and Federer and people like that uh, are able to enjoy. So they want to try and capitalize as much as possible. Um, Anyways, we've still got two months to go. A lot can happen in that time. Hopefully uh, progress is made. 
but it still seems awfully soon to me. So let's see what happens next. Yeah, we will see what happens. City Open in Washington is the first event for the ATP in August. Then Western Southern Open, U.S. Open, and a clay court swing. WTA calendar will be back with the Palermo Ladies Open before they play the Western and Southern Open, which is going to be on site at Flushing Meadows in New York. One tournament we're, obvi- we're obviously not getting this summer. Uh, it's, it's a disappointment, but I think we both know it's the right decision uh, that the Rogers Cup in Toronto, along with Montreal, has, of course, been postponed. Yeah, and they just they couldn't do it. We knew they couldn't do it. We knew it wasn't going to happen. It was a formality. We had CEO of Tennis Canada and President Michael Downey on, what, at least a month ago, and we had tournament director Carl Hale, and they both essentially said, yeah, it's not, it's not going to happen, barring some sort of a miracle that they couldn't afford to do the tournament uh without spectators and they certainly weren't going to risk people's health and safety by having them there um and and the window was just closing too quickly for it so uh that would have been my 13th rogers cup so maybe it's better i skip the 13th one anyhow but uh it, it will certainly be missed and i don't know about you you know tell me in a sec here what you'll miss the most for me it's it's not even the tennis but it's just uh the people that you connect with at that tournament, something I've been doing for feels like forever. And the one tournament I've been to the most, I'm really going to miss the people that I've, I've met over the years there from, uh, you know, the volunteers in the media center that, you know, on a first name basis, that you even keep in touch with on social media throughout the year to the tennis Canada staff, to uh, people like Ken Christina, who's been on before with us who's the, uh, the center court announcer, um, Tom Tebbett and other media people that I've had a great time forming relationships with over the years. I mean, me and Tom usually try and sneak down in the stands and find great vantage points to catch the action and just the fun stuff like that, where you're, you're building those relationships with people. And, and those are the memories when I look back, you know, as much as, Oh yeah, that player was fantastic or what a great result from so-and-so for me, it's just the little moments as well with, with people I've gotten to know there over those 12 years that I've attended. Yeah. It uh, would have been my fourth summer and, and fourth year attending Rogers cup and, and certainly a disappointment, but you're right. Once, once you're part of that press that uh, we've had the, the great fortune of, of being involved in uh, it is like one big family. And uh, I, I think for the Montreal tournament, which I've only had the opportunity to attend once, what I'll miss most is certainly the atmosphere. Absolutely electric, unbelievable. That's not a knock on Toronto. Just the atmosphere, I think, in tennis in Montreal is, is something a little bit greater. Uh, but as you said, Tennis Canada staff is fantastic. Also, I love um, being on site in Toronto, perusing around the side courts. Um, you know, ca- catching a, I caught a great glimpse of Bianca Andreescu. This was before she actually played her Jeannie Bouchard match, her, her opening round match last year. Of course, she went on to win the tournament, but uh, just – being, you know, about 20 feet away, seeing her practice and thinking, oh, she, she looks healthy. She is hammering this forehand and, and getting this great footage. You, you don't get player access uh, like you do in tennis compared to, to other sports. You just don't. And uh, that, that's a feature I think some people don't realize if they haven't been to a tennis tournament yet. And you really are right up close, especially if you go for, for a day in the afternoon where it's, it's a little more quiet. You can really see and hear everything. It's like a scavenger hunt for me. It's kind of like exploring those outer courts and practice courts. Like what gem am I going to find today? It could be overhearing a funny exchange between a couple of players. It could be, you know, for me taking that perfect shot in practice or up close on an outer court and just capturing those little things, uh, you know, four years ago or or three years ago, rather, I saw Bianca Andreescu at the fastest serve booth. She just dropped by on a whim after her practice session just to see how high she could get the serve going there were maybe like 10 people around who caught it and realized she was there. And this was before she, you know, really hit it big, yeah. but all the same, just little moments like that, little fun moments like that. Uh, Daniel Nestor once in practice who said to his partner, okay, this is match point Wimbledon finals, winner take all here. And then he threw his racket in the air and celebrated as if it was a grand slam moment for him after, after winning that point. So all those kind of things. And, and as you said, that's the fun of going to a big event like that. It's not necessarily about center court, although there's some great stuff that happens there too, but it's uh, around the grounds and just, you know, using your intuition because you, you never know where it's going to happen. Something special, something that uh, you won't read about in the paper or see on the TV. And uh, I will miss that, uh, that hunting around the grounds this year, but it's going to make it that much sweeter in 2021 when the men return to Toronto and the women will, uh, will be in Montreal. 
yeah, it will be a thrill to, to get back to the tournament for 2021. I can't wait for that. And uh, I'm excited to see tennis again if we get it, but uh, I, I will still hold my reservations whether it's possible. But so great to catch up with uh, Milos Raonic this week. who really gave us detailed insight. He was in a great mood. And uh, as we covered, I think he's going to be a great threat when he is back on court. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.